Welcome back to Cuban Serenade with Freddy Monasterio and Karen Dubinsky. In this episode, we continue exploring the history of Lula Lounge, one of the most important venues in Toronto for Cuban, Latin and non-Western music. As we heard in part one, Lula emerged from two Toronto venues. One was the Cervecería, the College Street Sports Bar, which packed the house with the energetic sounds of traditional Cuban music played by Claudio Congo and later Son Ache. Lula also inherited the more eclectic artistic scene created by Jose Neves and Jose Ortega in the Federal Street Apartments. This was a slightly different, more Latino world than what had been percolating since the 1980s on Queen Street at the Bamboo, or even at Harbour Front as Derek Andrews was programming world music performers with beer company funding. Tracy Jenkins, one of Lula's artistic directors, remembers going to the bamboo occasionally, and there was some overlap in audiences. Billy Bryans, former drummer with the Parachute Club, we spoke about him a few episodes ago, provided an important bridge between these musical scenes. But once Lula was established, the community supporting it exploded. It also began attracting music and people beyond Latin America, as well as Cubans directly from Cuba itself. In this episode, we'll also consider the importance of dance at Lula. We had the privilege of hearing about Lula's history directly from Jose Ortega, one of the founders and artistic directors. When we opened up as Lula, it was kind of like this, all of these people started showing up in these bands, so we were getting to know, one, that there was more bands than, than we realized, and then projects also started to come out because one of the things that we established early on was that as, as great as the cover bands are, um, and then they were mainly, I don't want to say all of them, but most of them were cover bands, is that we really wanted them to make original, or we really wanted to support them to make original music because we really felt that 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 was important to what we were doing, what we were about. Not We didn't just want to be that place where, you know, the set list is the same for the DJs and for everything, even though that does happen. But with the bands, it was most important that they express themselves and that they come up with the, their own experience, you know, which is a lot of our experiences is the being an immigrant, living in a new country, living in a new part of the world where it's colder and all of this stuff and, and embracing that where we're from and that we're here now. And to me, it was very important not to just keep going back to Cuba or Colombia or Puerto Rico or New York as this reference. Uh, I, I, did, I just felt that salsa didn't stand still. It, it needed to keep growing and needed to keep evolving and it needed to, to live. And I felt like and we're here and, and these are keepers of that art form. And it's a living art form. And in order for it to live, it needs to be expressed in the moment that it's living in the city that it's living in at, at that time. Uh, so, so that's one thing that we would always encourage the bands to little by little introduce original songs into their set list. And, and I think that right up until the pandemic, I mean, you could, if you listen to the, the live sets, now the opposite is true that most of the bands are doing like almost completely original songs in their two hour sets. And the people are listening to it and dancing to it. Whereas, and this is the good thing about the, uh, the openness of having a downtown, not specific specialized audience, is that their ears are more open. And to them, if it's El Gran Combo or if it's Gianni Borel, 
the the difference is they don't really understand yet that you know there's that there's a difference so they, to them it's all new so they're they're more accepting of that whereas if you go to the the community you know the colombians or whoever they're going to want to hear what they want to hear and they're they're more resistant to hear new music and so that so then this created kind of a space for for the bands to have a fresh audience that would react to them and they could try out new things and it was also not a demanding audience that it wasn't going to be going hey come on you know play this song play that song why aren't you doing this which does happen in the community so that that was kind of an opening that they had so then i think they felt that and right away you know there was a lot of material Cache came out with with CDs, um, we helped them out. Uh, I think in the, in the first one or, or the second one, then third, and so that so that we wanted to be part of that, and I think we we still are part of that that process of of creating original music. Musicians like Luis Obeoso saw the potential offered by Lula immediately. The thing that I like about Lula is they were super impulsive and, and they took a lot of risks. The manager, you can ask Jose, the manager was in the kitchen. He was also at the front greeting the customers. He was in the office. He was writing checks. I mean, he was programming the room. So basically everybody was doing everything and nobody had a real job per se everybody was was getting their hands dirty it it just st started so soon and everybody just had to go be spontaneous so i remember the first night i i just have some footage of that night when lula opened up on may 31st 2002 i brought well i, I got in contact with mr rafi disarri uh, a very well-known timbalero who recently passed away god rest his soul as well but he came, we actually called him the godfather of Lula because he was the first gentleman to come in from New York. And it was on the opening night. It was a very, very packed room. It was full, 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 full capacity, more than, than full capacity. And it was a very exciting moment because this was the opening of Lula. And I remember I was playing with Alexis Baró, Paco Luviano on bass, Luisito Guerra, you know, Hilario Duran on, on piano, Chendi León, on drums and uh, Phil Dwyer on sax and then Rafi was our special guest and, and we had a great time so man I could go on and on talking about you know what what happened in Lula like all of a sudden then Jose was trusting me with programming certain nights at Lula just to to get musicians involved and get music started in Lula but after that I found that I wasn't the only one carrying the weight I, I found that other musicians were expressing interest in starting up their own projects and their own uh, nights, so to speak. Like, for example, Mayito de Monte wanted to start his night on a, on a Wednesday. It's like every maybe two Wednesdays of the month and have his descarga, like more Cuban descarga, like Cuban music. And then I, I would have my nights as well and I would do something more like salsa, uh, you know, New York, Puerto Rico, Colombia, that kind of salsa. So anyway, slowly Lula became 
everybody's playground and it wasn't just a playground you know playground like a un parque de diversiones it was we we took it seriously we had ideas we had musical visions we had projects in mind and lula let us basically experiment with the people with the crowds with uh with the, the clients that would go and if if they liked it then lula would keep hiring us for example caché basically was around before lula opened but as soon as they opened they began to play at lula they had a really good fan base and lula was generating a lot of revenue because of caché so caché was practically playing at lula every weekend for maybe a year and a half two years every weekend caché especially saturday nights you know and then from then on i mean lula just kept growing um more people brazilians started hearing about lula african the african community started hearing about lula basically i remember how the world started hearing about lula i mean i i went to peru to visit and people in peru knew about lula and artists from out of town heard about lula and they wanted to come and play at lula they would even pay to come and play so it was a very very popular club it still is and it was a very risky move on the part of jose <laughs> i call them jose a and jose b very risky on their part but it was a great it's a good example of what a community driven project can generate for the community Clive Walker is a Toronto-based cultural critic and writer who's been writing about Toronto's reggae music scene for many years. Along with Nicholas Jennings, he's curated an exhibition about Toronto's English-Caribbean music history at the recently opened Friars Music Museum on Young Street in downtown Toronto. It's on display until the end of 2022. We highly recommend a visit. We spoke with him recently about English and Spanish-speaking Caribbean musical connections in Toronto, and he too praised Lula's open-minded approach to programming. No, Lula is a very, I think Lula is a, that's that's an area of, that has to be really looked at very closely because, it, you know, I, I really have a, a serious affection and affinity for Lula because of how they program in there and because of, obviously we know Everybody knows that it's a Latin, it's kind of, that's at the foundation of it, but it's not, you know, segregationist or any way that, you know, they're pretty open to who they bring in and, you know, and they try to invite all kinds of collaboration and all kinds of experimentation and, and those kinds of things, and, which is really up my alley. And so, you know, it's always been a pleasure being in there. So it's, it's, it's a lovely space and I've seen some great concerts in there. Lula also began to attract Cuban musicians directly from Cuba as well, becoming, as Jose Ortega describes it, a home base of Cubans recently arrived in the country. 
and as more and more Cuban musicians arrived, their impact on the Toronto music world was felt far beyond Lula itself. But when Café Cubano arrived was when the Cuban movement started in earnest uh, in, in a whole different level. And they were with Valentin, Valentin Los del Caribe, a band that I guess was touring during the summer tour circuit. And I, it was Gianni Borel, uh, Betancourt, Roberto Linares, a few other percussionists, and, and maybe even, I don't know how many of them, but that was almost like this, this meteor that hit Toronto. For that, we had Hilario Duran, Luis Mario Choa, different, not the timba thing, Joaquin Hidalgo. So he did, he did a thing, I think it was called the, the Lula Cuban All-Stars. So that was one of the pre previous to Havana Norte. Uh, and so that was more of a, I guess, the Cubans that were here already, and, and you know, and 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 more established, like uh, like Alberto Alberto, but uh, you know, the, the Cubans that, that have been here a long time. And then Cafe Cubano arrived, and they Betancourt came over with that project, the Cafe Cubano project, which had this heavy, timba, horn, energy, sexy thing that was like, what what is this? You know, like what what is this thing? Because they came raw from Cuba, right? They were touring. So before that, it, it, we didn't really have, and, and the other guys like the David Vireyes and Alexi Baro, uh, and those guys, they were, they were more on the jazz side. So they, they had a different, a different vibe, but these guys were, were barrio, you know, they, they, were, they, were, they were there, they, they were doing the thing. So they came in and they just blew it up. They, they really like the crowd loved them and the, the trumpet players would go in front of the stage and you know, do like a charangabarera thing, you know, moving their hips. And, you know, it was, it was a little dirty. It was a little, a little, a little bit of everything. And then, so they, they were doing an interesting thing though, because they were doing timba, but they were also playing a lot of gran combo and Oscar de Leon things. So they were, they were kind of pleasing the ears of the traditional crowd, but bringing in this, this hard driving Cuban sound. And they, they kind of went, they, they played it really, really well. But, and out of that project came um, Roberto Linares' project, grew out of that. Gianni Borel's project grew out of that. Well, Masa was part of, that, of them also. So then uh, Masa's Charanga. And because we created this Friday night Cuban thing, it was kind of like a space to say, okay, this is where, because the audience, even though they were open, Timba still scared people or, or turned people away because they're like, okay, why are these solos going on forever? And what is this? And the song is 15 minutes long and it never ends. And I don't know where to stop dancing. And so we thought, okay, we need a space so that people know what they're getting before they come in. So then we left the other stuff on Saturday nights. And then we, we dedicated this space for the Cubans to, to kind of develop all of that. Um, and each one, you know, Cafe Cubano has still been a strong band. Got, well, Papi Osco came, came in through that. So th this whole other generation of Cubans came, they coalesced really quickly, and then they kind of influenced the whole scene. And what started more as an isolated thing started to, those musicians started playing in the other bands and vice versa a little bit. And then the musicianship throughout all the bands started to go up and the showmanship started to go up because they had raised the bar quite a bit. I mean, I really think I've thought about this, that had that not happened, had we not had the Cubanismo uh, def defectors and the uh, Valentin defectors, it was like two different groups at slightly different times, but close together, 
I think maybe Lula could not have sustained artistically or, or creatively because with the energy that was in Toronto, I mean, it was good and it was, it was going places, but it really needed that, the, those ideas and, and that talent to come in and kind of give the whole scene a, a, a rebirth. And it was enough of them that it made a difference. It made a, a big difference. Uh, so I really think uh, it's hard to imagine our own path without that having, having happened uh, at some point in, in our history. And so then we were able to get behind, you know, uh, Telmari coming in and Roberto Linares' album, which was amazing. And, you know, he was just cooking that up on his own. Uh, and so he actually made the CD and I was pushing him to make a, a concert band to, to, you know, put it on the stage because he had made the CD, recorded with, you know, the people he knew and did it how he wanted to, but it wasn't really a, it wasn't really a concert concept. So it, so it was kind of like it, that show grew out of the, the, the uh, out of his, his, his own project and kind of being pushed to be a band leader, which is hard. So he, he actually couldn't. Keep, keep doing it because it is a very demanding thing to, to be a band leader. That was huge. I mean, having Roberto Linares was, was epic. And then with him, we did uh, a few projects with him and Luisito teaming them up together, using their different strings. We, we did a South Africa project where we, um, you know, we took the influences directly from Africa and, and with the salsa and all the, you know, all the things that happened there. Um, and they did, a, they did a concert. We would do a lot of these things for the uh, Open City Festival, the Lula World festival that we did every year so we would always come up with new projects or new ways of working together and Havana, Havana, Havana Norte came part of that and then we were able to focus on the other bands that are also doing work so it was uh, yeah that was exciting it was really exciting uh, to see all of that coming up and, and evolving and then it felt like I don't know every two weeks another musician was like hey I got a band I'm working on a project you know uh, and then, then now Martelena came from Anacaona, uh, originally from Anacaona, and they also played at Lula, and then they some of them stayed. And then before that, we had um, Detalle, the Detalle girls, there was an all-girl band that played also on tour, and they stayed, and they played for a while as the complete band. Um, and they were actually living in one of Jose Neves' apartment at Federal Street. So there was like always this community going back and forth. Um, and then they moved to the West Coast or something. We quickly became a, a home base. I think when the Cubans arrived here, they, they recognized that this was a place where they can really spread their wings, do what they want to do. And, you know, these guys work construction, they're working as roofers, really tough jobs during the week. 
and they would come in on the weekends and really lay it on. And we were not, we, I mean, uh, no matter what, as the highest level we could pay, it's not really paying them enough for the, the rehearsals and the, the everything that they're doing and what they're doing on stage. And uh, they're doing it for the love of the music. How can I say, we encouraged large bands, which is also kind of like a, a not small ingredient to all of this, because as a club, the, the temptation is to keep the bands small because really to make a bunch of people dance and drink and charge cover, you don't need 12 guys. You don't need 14 guys. You can do it with seven guys. But these guys kept coming in and it's like, no, we need 10, we need 11. We need... So, you know, we, we grew up to 12, but that's not business decision that we make on our side to support a 12 piece band every week to keep the purity of the sound and to keep the, the, the beauty of all of that happening. But also, it's almost like you need a critical mass to create the energy on the stage, and then they get themselves going. And it's almost like a ritual that, that happens. So that was, I guess, our contribution to letting all of that happen, is that by not limiting the size of the band, was a little bit of opening the door a little bit wider and, and letting more, more things happen. is a beautiful space with an elaborate tropical vibe that comes just to the edge of kitschy irony. In the middle of the elevated tables and banquettes is a large dance floor, which is also one of the keys to its success. Both Tracy Jenkins and Jose Ortega comment on the importance of dance and dance instruction at Lula. I know that Jose, when he's watching the the groups, really pays attention to how the dancers are reacting to the band. And if a if a band isn't uh, getting people on the dance floor, then you know there's there's something that needs to be looked at. Like the 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 dancers by watching to see how people are, are responding through dance, it, you know, it, it it tells you something about about the band. Because we had a rotation of different dance instructors doing our Friday and Saturday lessons, so every every Friday and Saturday would begin with a dance lesson, and that was also a a way for people who who weren't familiar with the the culture to get involved to you know get a a little bit better understanding of the music even before the band came on and that has been i think a large part of what helped to keep the or helped the fridays and saturdays because people would would come to do, you know, have dinner, do a dance lesson, even if they hadn't any other or previous experience dancing. It was kind of an icebreaker. And the, like Lula is, seems to me different from a, a lot of other Latin clubs that we've seen in the city, because although people come to dance and there's always um, some amazing dancers, 
you know, who like blow your mind, the moves that they can can make. There's also always a lot of people just watching and moving from side to side, or people line dancing at the front together as this mass of people, less than um, uh, partner dancing. So at the front, you'll have the people, you know, doing the line dancing in this choreographer choreography that kind of gets passed from person to person. Um, and then behind that, you'll have the couples dancing and sort of around the edges, you'll have people, uh, you know, shuffling back and forth. And then maybe at the very back, you've got groups doing Casino Rueda. So there's all different ways people are responding to the music through dance. Definitely the club would not exist if it weren't for dancers wanting to come and move to the music. Like when we're doing when we're doing the work, um, we're, I think we're working in at least three levels. Maybe there's there's more levels because on, on one side there's the music, the, the musicians, which we really want the the very best to be presented on the stage. So that if you are from Cuba or New York or Puerto Rico or wherever Colombia, you go, you stand in front of the stage, you listen to what's going on there, and you understand that these guys are serious and this is it's no joke. They're really working to to do what they're doing out there and make it great and on the other side the other level is that this is social right i mean the tradition of salsa which i respect is that it's this communication between the band and the dancers and that's it's like this this energy that's it's part of the music you can't take that away and well if you do you take that away then you have jazz and that's great too but it's a different animal and the animal of salsa is the clave and it's got to make people dance and that's almost like the part of the ritual so that's got to be always respected and is one of the highest achievements of, of making that music at that moment. And then the third one is that the context is that it's Toronto, that we're in, in a city, a, a multicultural city of many people from many countries, many languages, and we are a bridge to the culture. So on one, you know, on one side, we want to give people the real thing but at the same time, we have to kind of gently introduce them to it. And that's where the dance teachers, their charm, their capabilities, their technique of, of doing that. For, it's basically the first salsa lesson every week for many people. And then it, and it kind of stays on that. This is the first lesson. It's the introduction to Sarita does a whole thing about clave. Every teacher has their own style, but it's to get the people that maybe for the first time they're, they're being taught to listen to the rhythm and interpret the rhythm with their feet or their hips or their arms and think of their body as a, a vehicle for what they're listening to. So then the teachers do this in a way that hopefully isn't too complicated and is a lot of fun. In, in my own mind, I see it as we're genetically altering their DNA just a little bit so that you know, they get kind of hooked to this experience, gently coming in through their ears, coming out of their feet. Then they drink, they eat, they have a good time, they see the band, and it comes through their eyes also with the, the colors and everything else. So it becomes like this whole experience that surrounds them, all around them. And the dance teachers are kind of like their first guide into that, that makes them first feel the rhythms, then, you know, they, they, they tell them, you know, this is getting you ready for when you, the live band comes on, you know what to do. And gets them used to um, couple dancing, which maybe for some people, it's a different experience. You're touching a stranger, you know, you're one foot away or seven inches away from a strange person holding them, uh, grabbing their waist, holding their hand. It's all new. This is a whole new world. So, so we're kind of like the tour guides. It's, so it's a little bit like on one level, 
I want it to feel like it's like the best music ever. And on the other level, it's like a cruise, right? It's got to be friendly and warm and kind of easy for the, the people that don't know all the stuff for them to come in and they're like, oh, okay, this is great. It's not intimidating. We, we don't want it to be intimidating. So that's one of the things we stress with the dancers is that, that we really want people to feel comfortable wherever they are in their level of dancing um, in their whole level of enjoyment and just making sure that it's about the fun because this is how it started. It didn't start with the dance schools and the steps. It started as a social dance and dancers traditionally have even more self-expression. If you go to Cuba or Puerto Rico or Colombia, the dancers, they don't necessarily dance to these steps or these, these patterns. They improvise, they make up their own thing. They have completely, they decide to go off on different rhythms, on different movements. And, and so if you see dancers inside the culture, it's a whole different thing. And, and it's not, you know, what's become more, more normal, but it's social. At the end, it's social and it's fun and it's a celebration. And, and so the, us working with the dance schools is part of that. And then, of course, people who want to get into it more, you know, they, they, be, they kind of can choose their dance school or choose to, to go further into it and they could go beyond and go wherever they want with it because then they could choose Cuban style, salsa on one, salsa on two, LA style, you know, you can go into the rabbit hole of, of dance. But that, that essence is important. And it's important to, for us, for the teachers to, like Dailene, who have a good time with it and who are also amazing dancers, who are kind of embodiments of the culture and they understand it. So they don't, so they're able to introduce people, but they don't water it down to a level where it's corny or disrespectful to, to the culture. So we always want to keep that respect for what we're doing. So we don't try to make it about dirty dancing or about picking up or about, you know, these tacky things um, that sometimes is attached to salsa. So we, we, we're kind of more cultural purists in that way, as opposed to making it about the, the commercial aspects of it. Melissa Noenta is a dancer, choreographer, and educator who has collaborated prolifically with Lula since the early 2000s. She has run dance classes out of Lula and collaborated with Dailin Martinez and Damaris Aguirre for the Guabaila Weekend long workshops that included music and dance performances and a community conga led by Alejandro Céspedes in 2016 and 2017. Between 2018 and 2019, Noventa ran a series of Cuban dance workshops named Sabori Manana and Cuba Baila with Jordan Gutierrez and Dali Perez. These workshops included live music performed by very talented local musicians including Raimundo Sosa, Benny Aguerra, Phil Jedman and Rafael Seco. Noventa is also a PhD candidate in cultural studies at Queen's University looking at cultural diplomacy between Cuba and Canada. 
Through this groundbreaking research, she's trying to answer questions such as, how has Cuban culture appeared on stages, including places like Lula? How is Cubania performed in Canada? And how do we understand that as Canadians? How do Canadians come to understand and misunderstand Cubans through music and dance, and vice versa? Noventa told us about her various experiences working with Lula and also stressed its important role as a community and cultural hub. My first um, encounter actually with salsa in, in Toronto was through Berlin, which Jose mentions in the first episode. So it is really fascinating to compare the two, the two venues and how much more communal Lula is. And my, and my first, and I couldn't remember, I was trying to remember my first like actual encounter with Lula and I can't even remember. The one that sticks out in my mind is that I did my undergraduate project there with another student where we showcased Cuban music and dance um, as a two night performance with some live music. And Tracy and Jose were just so, I don't know, like generous in helping us do that as undergraduate students with no budget, <laughs> you know, helping us think about offering tapas. And so I, I think you're right in that it's really, like a cultural hub. It's more than just a live music venue. It's a cultural hub where there's so many things happening, including dance classes and and not even just Latin dance. Burlesque performances happen out of there. West African performances happen out of there. So not just a world music scene, but also a world dance scene. And you can't separate dance and performance from Cuban music. That those that the idea of performance and Cuban music is kind of a unit. And I think Lula is a great example of that because all of those things are happening all, all of the time, right? In my own experience in Lula, like, you know, more, more current, I guess, um, I think Jose's observation is spot on. It's, you know, you have the music, you have your professional dancers who come with their shoes in their bag and, and you know, change their change roles when they hit on the dance floor. And then you have a whole bunch of people who don't, who aren't necessarily trained, you know, in a formal sense through a dance studio or through dance classes who are just there to enjoy themselves, maybe they're first timers. And so you'll have a, an experienced dancer with a novice dancer, or you'll have street dancers dancing together. And certainly as Cuban dancers have begun to, you know, conglomerate there in, in greater numbers, you also get sort of a whole show that happens outside of, like in a very impromptu way, like it's very common for dancers to jump on stage with the musicians and interact with them that way, which also is a, a whole other experience of dance and music for, let's say, non-Cuban, non-Latino, non-musically oriented people, maybe non-performance oriented people who are not necessarily used to the audience interaction with performance in that way, where we're sort of used to sitting in our seats and like, can we clap now? You know, this is a much more interactive experience on all, in, on all your senses. Vamos, mi gente, con la clave. The arrival of Lula helped to solidify a change in Cuban music in Canada. No longer will Cuban music without Cubans come even close to describing the scene. The world Lula has helped to create includes Cubans and other Latinos, Canadians, immigrants and visitors from almost everywhere, committed to enjoying and respecting the traditions of a variety of musical styles. Transnational musical circulation is always shaped by the circumstances of the particular nations. Canada is a country with a small Cuban diaspora, but a huge appetite for Cuban tourism. Over a million Canadians visit the island annually. Evidence of that can be found on the dance floor of Lula every night, 
where white Canadians with memories of Veradero vacations block out the winter scene outside while they learn new dance moves. But Lula emerges from the collective talent and sophisticated artistic vision of Latinos in Toronto, people who have, for 20 years, sustained a place where dislocated communities of Cubans make their way through Canada's particular blend of affection, exoticism, racism, and consumerism. Next stop, we move our story out of Toronto to Northern BC, where we talk to veteran Cuban singer-songwriter Alex Cuba, who recently added a Grammy win to his long list of awards. Hasta pronto. Hasta pronto.